This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the pleasure of welcoming back Professor Andreas Obermeyer, who is at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And uh, the reason for this podcast today is that we want to talk about an upcoming trial, an important trial, a phase three randomized clinical trial comparing sentinel lymph node biopsy with no retroperitoneal node dissection in apparent early stage endometrial cancer, the ENDO3 trial. So, Andreas, once again, welcome and thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. Pedro, thank you very much for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure uh, joining you um, and, uh, and discussing interesting contemporary things. Fantastic. So, Andreas, let's, let's get started because we have quite a number of uh, questions and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, the first question, uh, as we look at the, the rationale for this study, you know, certainly seems that most gynecologic oncologists, at least in the United States, now consider sentinel lymph node uh, mapping as pretty much a standard staging for endometrial cancer. Here, you're proposing a comparison to no lymph node evaluation at all. Um, tell us why. Pedro, to answer that, we need to know how it came that lymph node dissection surgical staging was introduced in the 1980s. There were a trio of very respected um, um, and decorated uh, U.S. gynecological oncologists and they thought that they really wanted to know what the incidence was of node dissection because uh, at the time they noticed enlarged nodes, they removed them. Uh, and so this was, they just really wanted to know what the incidence was. And they worked out what the incidence was and they plotted that against grade and depth of invasion. Uh, and then they expanded the study and got even better quality data. Figure, which is a different entity to these three investigators picked that up and thought, this is a great, this is a great idea, a great concept. We like this. And Figo mandated, based on these observational studies, to make lymph node dissection a mandatory step uh, and establish surgical staging. My issue is that this decision benefited gynecological oncologists worldwide to defend their practice. Um, and, and we all benefited from that financially and in other ways. In 2008 and 2009, the results of the Aztec and the Italian trial were published mm -hmm. uh, and showed no benefit whatsoever. I do acknowledge that the studies were criticized, but also in the meantime, sentinel node biopsy developed. Um, and there are some claims about sentinel node biopsy. Um, uh, some very high-quality studies have shown that a sentinel node biopsy can replace a full node dissection, but we don't really know what the value of sentinel node biopsy is. We know that uh, compared to full node dissection, there are short operating times, lower blood loss, and so forth. Uh, but we don't really know what the value to patients of sentinel node biopsy. So there are a lot, a lot of things that we don't know for example, is there a patient benefit for sentinel node biopsy? And I guess 
I'm concerned and some other people who I collaborate with are concerned that we're over-treating patients or possibly over-treating patients on a massive scale. So certainly a lot of questions uh, will come up and I hopefully we'll get time to discuss them, um, drawing from, from that opening statement. Um, but I wanted to also go through the design of the study. And I understand there's two stages to it. Can you just uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, those two stages for your study? Yes, yeah, so similar to the last trial, which we uh, complete, we published in 2017, we have two stages. One is a feasibility phase where we enroll or randomize about 300 patients. Um, and, uh, and in the second phase, uh, sorry, in this first phase, uh, short-term outcomes will be the primary endpoint, such as um, perioperative outcomes, quality of life problems, very importantly, um, adverse events, and, and so forth. Um, should we pass the feasibility phase, the first 300 patients, uh, which in my opinion, I have no doubt we will, then we will enroll another 450 patients. And that final uh, phase then will have disease-free survival as the endpoint at four and a half years, uh, but also cost-effectiveness. So um, establishing those two stages is basically a risk mitigation strategy for funders of this trial uh, to to basically make it maybe a little bit more attractive uh, to invest money into this trial. Fair enough. And uh, one of the questions that comes to us from one of our fellows in the journal, um, he asked, uh, what's the difference between doing a two-stage design and just like an interim analysis? So in the end of three trial, there will be no interim analysis um, because we're hoping to uh, complete enrollment of this trial in about three, three and a half, four years. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wouldn't make sense to to uh, introduce an interim analysis. Uh, the two-stage design is really only to indicating to funders that we're cautious about feasibility uh, and that we're aware um, uh, you know, that this is maybe a bold and aspirational trial um, that could result in lack of enrollment. Um, but so far, we didn't uh, find that uh, risk would actually venture in. Yeah. And, and Andreas, you mentioned that uh, you anticipate three and a half years. Just a, a quick question on clarification. Uh, do you anticipate three and a half years for each stage or for the entire study? So we're hoping that we can complete enrollment um, in about three years. Um, we we started already. Um, normally, our trials, we, we roll out um, in little stages. So we had uh, two surgeons started and enrolled about five patients a month, and four more surgeons have been accredited this month and um, and kind of will start, will start enrolling this month. And there are... Hopefully, many more uh, surgeons interested, and there are actually a few in the pipeline. And uh, I would like to encourage everyone who wishes to take part to come forward and be in touch with me. Fantastic. So, tell us a little bit about your primary objective and then uh, some of the secondary objectives of the study. So, the primary um, outcome is disease free survival at four and a half years. 
Um, I think most of us would agree that in the primary treatment setting of endometrial cancer disease free survival is the most important and key uh, outcome parameter that um, will allow us to judge about success or failure of an intervention. If a recurrence happens, it's certainly a very important uh, event for a patient that triggers further treatment but also indicates poor prognosis. So. And and most uh, most trials in the past use disease-free survival. Uh, the secondary outcome parameters, uh, the main outcome from the first phase is actually returning to usual daily activities, mm-hmm. uh, and that includes quality of life and proms. And those are also really really important important parameters um, because at the end of the day we should be able to counsel our patients um, about the benefits um, and drawbacks of different treatment strategies yeah, yeah absolutely and um, who, who are you who are you including in this study and who's who's not a candidate who are the what are the exclusion criteria this is very straightforward so we include um, patients with clinically stage one endometrial adenocarcinoma without any evidence of extra uterine disease and medical imaging or clinical examination um, so that means we exclude patients uh, who do need to have a lymph node dissection, for example, if they have um, lymph nodes visible on uh, on medical imaging. We routinely do a CT scan. So if the uh, we defined um, if a lymph node is larger than one centimeter in short axis, uh, then uh, the patient is not eligible for the trial because we believe that this, um, these lymph nodes should be removed. If there is any other concern that the patient should have a node dissection, um, then sh- the patient will not be eligible. Uh, I should also say that most patients are obviously of endometrial tumor type, but we're happy to uh, enroll patients with all epithelial uh, cell types, but not sarcomas. I see. So that actually brings me to to the next question, and this one is coincidentally from our fellow from Australia, Emma Allison, um, and she asks, uh, you know, one item that seems to draw attention to this study is that you're also including non-endometrioid cell types. Um, do you think doctors or patients will be willing to avoid a lymph node assessment in the setting of high-risk histology? I would ask I would ask my colleagues what the what the benefit of a lymph node dissection in a high risk cell type is, keeping in mind that most of these patients, like thinking of uh, uterine serous carcinomas, for example, will receive uh, possible treatment. So you have you then end up with a situation where you do an operation, you may do a lymph node dissection, and you treat then the patient, like in our case, with chemoradiotherapy. So that's a triple whammy. Um, and I would argue that you can you can easily omit one of those um, interventions, which is a node dissection, because in the absence of enlarged nodes, because the patient is going to have possibly chemoradiotherapy mm-hmm. anyway. Um, that's what I would argue. Very interesting, yeah. Um, Next question comes to us from Eric um, in Guatemala, Eric Estrada. He mentions uh, um, you use tools that you're allowing for preoperative imaging such as CT, MRI, or ultrasound. Why not PET-CT? So um, 
there, this this has just local um, local governance uh, reasons uh, because a PET CT scan is not rebated in Australia for endometrial cancer prior to surgery. That's the only reason. Okay. And um, as a follow up, but I guess I uh, guess if sorry if if Eric would would want to, or if any institution would want to enroll patients in their protocol is that they do a PET CT scan prior to surgery, I'd be I'd be perfectly happy with that. So, so but PET, PET it CT just comes is as a, as a practice. Yeah, it is an acceptable modality then um, in the study. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, another question was regarding the tracer. Uh, and, and certainly uh, it seems that patients will be undergoing mapping with ICG on this study. Um, will you not allow any other tracer to be used, and, and why not? And if such is the case, are you concerned about um, institutions in developing countries where ICG may not be available? Yeah, so, Pedro, as you know, uh, because we had uh, we had a journal plump about this, we published... Um, the standards of Sentinel node biopsy in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer recently, uh, and basically this work that we published recently was uh, in preparation for this trial. We wanted to de develop and, and publicize our standard, and that standard includes uh, using ICG. If people wish to use another tracer in addition to ICG, then that'll be perfectly fine. But we, be, we there is consensus, there is worldwide global consensus that ICG is the uh, the gold standard in using a tracer. And so that's what we just simply do. Great. And um, and along with that, um, be it ICG or other tracers, uh, Sarah Nasser from Germany asks, um, where do you suggest for the ICG to be injected? Yeah, so um, the um, people, people, I would, I would encourage people to uh, maybe go back um, and uh, uh, and uh, make themselves familiar with the with the mandatory, optional, and unwarranted steps. Um, basically, we use ICG. We inject it into the cervix superficially, plus minus deep, at two or four positions in the cervix. Um, and again, um, we're just basically, we just defined the, the standard, um, and, um, and as part of this trial, uh, we would want our surgeons to, to adhere to the standard, uh, because the challenge is going to be afterwards in interpreting the trial results, we just really need to deliver a very, uh, homogenous, um, reproducible surgical intervention because otherwise uh, we're not quite sure what we're actually comparing. Yeah, and I think that's a great plan to remain consistent to have a uniform approach. Um, Absolutely. Now, what are, you know, one of the things that always comes up, Andreas, and obviously, as you know very well uh, from previous discussions of uh, surgical trials, um, it's the issue of surgical proficiency. And of course, obviously, there's always this question of you know, how good are the surgeons involved in the study? Um, what kind of surgical proficiency must surgeons demonstrate uh, with sentinel lymph node mapping if wanting to be involved in the ENDO-3 trial? So 
better with respect, I see this slightly different. Um, I I really believe that there are a large number of uh, of people out there who are surgically proficient and who can do a sentinel node biopsy really well. In this trial, what we're not checking is proficiency, but the standard. We just want to roll out one intervention that is that is consistently applied to. Um, 50% of my 760 and patients. So that standard includes that we need to submit 30 cases. We just want to make sure that surgeons actually do sentinel node biopsy on a more or less regular basis. Then they meet, uh, they need to uh, meet the, um, the standards as published in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Um, and then we developed a huge governance issue, uh, sorry, governance uh, program with uh, surgical accreditation committees. Uh, and uh, I would like to thank Professor George Hammer from uh, from Hammersmith, London, uh, to chair that committee. He's a general, he's a, an upper GI surgeon, and uh, he's done lots of surgical accreditation stuff and. Um, and surgical training uh, work before, for example, in colorectal trials. Mm-hmm. And so he, he monitors that. In addition to this accreditation thing, where we just really monitor the standard, there will be strict ongoing monitoring. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, for example, we're going to look at the bilaterality rate, which should not drop uh, below 70% on an on- ongoing basis. But we also go, for example, look at... The, uh, the percentage of nodes being removed in the no-node dissection arm, uh, mm-hmm. because certainly for us in Australia, there is a financial incentive to remove nodes. So you can see, overall, this is probably, to my knowledge, the trial with the strictest and, uh, and harshest um, accreditation and surgical monitoring scheme that you would have seen in any surgical trial in our profession before. Yeah, and, and, and this this is, again, I mean, to the value of the studies in terms of how to put in the appropriate methodology um, for the uh, for the results later on to certainly have uh, increased credibility. Um, now, this next question uh, comes from Cecilia Darin from Argentina, and she asked an interesting question. In patients uh, selected for sentinel lymph node um, mapping in your study, if you don't find the sentinel lymph node, would you then recommend proceeding with lymphadenectomy and exclude the patient from the analysis, or could the patient then switch between groups and be analyzed as no node dissection? So, um, in our protocol, we said that if we can't identify a sentinel node, which on one side, which should hopefully not be. Um, which would be a rare event, mm-hmm. uh, then a site-specific lymphadenectomy will be performed. Um, so that's that. Um, and we will, the analysis of the trial will be by intention to treat. Um, it will be, um, I mean, all of us would have had patients in the past where we wanted to do a sentinel node biopsy and we didn't map a node and then we had to make a decision whether um, 
we we do an ipsilateral uh, lymphadenectomy or not. Um, so we we we're going to um, analyze them by intention to treat. So no patient will ever be excluded from any analysis. Uh, that's part of the international guidelines on how we analyze data uh, from clinical trials. Great, excellent. And um, um, another question from her is also, will you use or will it be allowed to uh, use intraoperative frozen section to evaluate the surgical specimen? No, um, that is that is not allowed. Uh, we wish to compare two algorithms of management. One is centered node biopsy and the other one is no-node dissection. To introduce the idea of an intraoperative frozen section examination will be a third algorithm and we just don't do that in this trial. Okay. And um, this is another question from Emma from uh, Australia. Again, adjuvant therapy for endometrial cancer obviously varies uh, across the globe. Um, what process did you implement um, in the development of your study for a plan uh, for consistency in adjuvant therapy? Yeah, so that's a biggie. Uh, that's a biggie and that caused us um, some headache, but I think <laughs> we solved it now. Um, initially, we had a system. So we got a multidisciplinary team together, uh, Australian experts uh, in gynecological oncology, chemomedical oncology, and radiation oncology. And we worked out, based on Portec and other data, what the risk of relapse is, so that influences disease-free survival, our primary endpoint. And we came up with one system that we wanted to roll out across all sites uh, on adjuvant treatment until we fell over. We basically ran into trouble with one of our sister sites. So, and we worked it out just a few weeks ago that we can now, each site can specify their treatment protocol. So, for example, Andy Anderson could specify saying, look, in patients with uh, stage 1B grade 3, we do this. Uh, and then I'm saying that's perfectly cool. So we write that down. We write a protocol. We write an agreement between Andy Anderson and us. It's basically the way, the way you treat patients. And we, the only thing that we want is we want you to be consistent, mm -hmm. right? So you shouldn't then say, ah, oh, well, the patient had no notes done. So we want to give her chemotherapy in addition or radiotherapy in addition. So what we can't have is we can't compensate for the lack of surgical staging that we give patients radiation treatment or chemotherapy. The only thing that we can do and should do, because this is standard treatment, patients who have positive nodes should receive adjuvant treatment, that's for sure. But the new version of the protocol will allow sites to specify prospectively their own adjuvant treatment, which is a major a major step that we've just taken a few weeks ago. Very well. And um, this, this uh, question uh, came up in uh, several discussions with the fellows. Also, um, the question is, you're evaluating oncologic outcomes at four and a half years. 
Why that time frame and not the traditional five years? Um, we've done trials um, previously, for example, the last trial, but um, we're going to see this with uh, other trials as well, where we're basically finding that there are hardly any recurrences after three years. Um, so if we do four, four and a half years, that's heaps anyway. Uh, there are just simply no recurrences after three years. Uh, and the longer you have a trial, the more expensive it gets, uh, and the longer the community will also wait for the results. That's that's the central reason. Right. And then now, Andreas, you, you, you tell us a little bit about, you mentioned quality of life assessment, and I think it's great, obviously, that you have included this. Uh, you're also doing uh, patient-reported outcomes. Um, when, when do you evaluate these? And, and I believe that there's a final assessment at, at 12 months. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we will capture quality of life and, uh, and patient-reported outcomes from uh, up to 12 months. So we assess them uh, regularly um, after one week, after four weeks, after three months, uh, six months, and 12 months. Um, and I completely agree with you, Pedro. The, um, at the end of the day, those quality of life outcomes, for example, in LACE trial, have decided what the standard treatment is. Mm -hmm. I bring you back to LACE. In LACE, we have shown that, um, that the safety profile and the quality of life was much better for minimally invasive surgery compared to open surgery, and disease-free survival was similar. So at the end of the day, the safety profile plus the quality of life outcomes have decided on what the standard treatment should be. And I envisage for the end of three trials something very similar. Um, I would like to make a plug for PROMS. Um, so I also have um, included PROMS in surgical performance and use it there routinely. And it is an amazing addition to my clinical routine and it teaches me so much more about the patient perspective of care. Um, so if you go into PROMS and you delve into this, um, then patients are willing to tell you things about how they perceive care that they would not be willing to tell you in a face-to-face -face conversation. Yeah, and those are the uh, the PROs that you're referring to for uh, our international yes. um, uh, listeners. Um, now, you also, you're looking at something, uh, body composition and frailty. Um, Sarah from Germany was asking us, uh, what parameters are you uh, using to evaluate this? So I would like to congratulate Sarah on this question because I think these are really, really important questions. Um, so we will examine frailty because I always suspected that even really large ladies are frail. Like we, we associate frailty with patients with a really low body mass index. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would argue that even really large large patients can be frail. So we uh, use a validated frailty tool. It's called the frailty, frailty phenotype that includes uh, physical ability, exhaustion, strength, and walking time. So the time required to walk 15 feet. Mm -hmm. And we're going to assess frailty uh, prospectively. Very well. 
this is another interesting question uh, from Eric in Guatemala. He says, you, you know, you will compare um, lymphedema, and this is one of the areas that is often criticized in terms of methodology because there's so many variables that might impact the final result or, or your objective of evaluation of the lymphedema. How will you avoid uh, some of these potential pitfalls? Yeah, so we have we have a track uh, track record in in lymphedema research, um, especially the work of uh, Professor Sandy Hayes, who I follow here. So she's she's the um, the uh, the investigator who looks after lymphedema assessment. In our previous study, which was one of the first prospective studies uh, on lymphedema assessment, we compared I think four or five methods to uh, detect lymphedema, and we found that all of these five instruments pick up lymphedema, and we're using three of them in this trial. One is a questionnaire that picks up self-report lymphedema. The other is a tool measuring bioimpedance spectrometry um, that has been shown, especially in breast cancer, to pick up uh, lymphedema earlier than with uh, circumference measurements. But we also, in a selected sample, we will do uh, leg circumference measurements. What we found is that you're absolutely right. There are a huge number of confounding factors. Um, we found, for example, that obesity is one of the biggest risk factors for lymphedema. But lymphedema is extremely common, uh, uh, especially uh, especially in individual cancer patients and in other work that we've done on vulva cancer, we have found that lymphedema is probably the most, uh, the single most uh, adverse event that impacts on patients' long-term quality of life the most. So it's a very important, uh, very important aspect when we look at when we look at survivorship of patients. Yeah, and also what a great opportunity to, to evaluate this in such a large number of patients prospectively. Now, Andreas, w one thing Absolutely. that I saw um, in, in the protocol that I thought was interesting also, you're going to compare follow-up strategies and you differentiate between clinical versus symptom checklist. Uh, what do you mean by that? So... Um In our previous work, we, which is consistent with other work that's been done in this area, we found that the vast majority of patients um, who, who developed recurrence um, were symptomatic or, you know, presented with symptoms uh, just prior to being diagnosed with recurrence. And so we studied the literature and we did a small pilot And so in the literature, there are a total of 19 symptoms um, reported. Um, and in our pilot, we basically found only four symptoms are really commonly associated with recurrence. So we, we, just, we just think that the way we do, we conduct follow-up at the moment for individual cancer patients is a little bit old school and old-fashioned. Um, and... Uh, We're hoping to contribute to the evidence um, and we're hoping to develop new angles of how we can conduct follow-up nicer and smarter and more patient-friendly. 
That's great. I'm looking forward to seeing those results. Um, now, one thing also, you're collecting tissue for translational research, but as I look through the port protocol, I don't think this is part of the study itself, but this is more so for future uh, evaluation. Like, what do you plan to do with this uh, tissue, and how do you think molecular studies or profiling will impact the results of this study? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Thank you, Pedro. We basically, end of three uh, is an opportunity to um, to employ a biobanking strategy. So um, we are just collecting uh, blood at baseline um, and uh, we also obtain consent for obtaining tumor tissue. Um, we're hoping that um, after the study has enrolled patients and we've got all the clinical data that we can reconcile the molecular with histopathological and clinical data um, and help validating some of the studies that are being done at the moment. Um, at the moment, the evidence for the routine use of molecular Profiling classifiers, in my opinion, is very weak, uh, and it, mm. but it is clear to me that they that is likely to change in the future, and uh, biomarkers may really have an add value to histopathology, and we're just trying to use that as a as a vehicle because this is a unique opportunity. You're, you're correctly saying we're enrolling six, 760 patients. We will have a really well-documented cohort of patients. We will have central histopathology review plus biomarkers. So that will be an enormous resource for uh, generations of gynecological oncologists that come after me, Petra, <laughs> to take advantage of uh, to take advantage of, of these resources. Well, Andreas, how, how exciting, obviously, to embark on, on this uh very, very important and interesting project. So now my, my last question, um, what do you see the future of the surgical management of endometrial cancer? Uh, do you think that there will be patients who ultimately will not undergo any staging at all, even when potentially considered high-risk patients? Um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, Pedro, 100%. I mean, look, consider this for a moment. In 2021, we're essentially uh, doing the same treatment, uh, the same surgical concept, uh, like in 1986. Right? Uh, I think that's just really wrong. We we should have we should have moved. Uh, we should have been more innovative. Um, one size fits all. This concept, I think, is outdated. Um, and I think molecular profiling will add a lot of information to conventional histopathology. It will offer a new dimension to look into this. Um, I would go even so far, Pedro, to say that some patients may not even may not even require surgery. Um, think of the think of the new FEM trial results. Um, that where we can identify patients who uh, will be just happy with um, a liver or just a joint device and they may not benefit from surgery at all. So I think we will hopefully embark on a really fascinating journey 
where we can offer more personalized and more individualized treatment that will include surgery, molecular profiling, and histopathology, um, and uh, hopefully will will make the world of gynecological oncology surgery a little bit more humane and smarter and maybe more empathic. Andreas Obermeyer, always a pleasure, always an opportunity for learning when speaking with you. Uh, congratulations again uh, for embarking on this really important study. Congratulations for the publications of really have practiced changing studies in the past. Thank you for what you do for gynecologic oncology. Um, and thank you uh, from all patients with gynecological cancer for advancing the field. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Pedro, for really having me um, and uh, for the time to chat. It's always uh, such an enormous uh, pleasure to talk to you, but also that um, you also uh, collate and collect the the questions from the uh, journal fellows, which I think is just such an amazing, amazing thing. So I, I thank you and I also thank uh, thank your your journal fellows uh, for reviewing the protocol um, and for asking really smart questions. Thank you, my friend.